Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Welcome to this week's edition of Family Stories, the podcast written by you, our listeners. This week's family stories include a low-level parachute jump on D-Day, tragic endings in the air and at sea, and hearing the news every soldier, sailor and airman long to hear. Begin this week with this story from Alex Birch. Dear Alan James, When my grandpa, Ken Lang, turned 18, he joined the 2nd 4th South Lancashire's which was soon converted to a parachute battalion. The pay was better in the parachute regiment, so he signed up, joining the 13th Lancashire Parachute Battalion. He was initially trained on mortars. Once, when training on Brecon, he was ordered over the radio by his CO, Lieutenant Ellis Dixie Dean, to lay a bombardment on the brown patch to the side of the church tower. From his forward position, he could see the brown patch was actually a herd of Brecon ponies and refused the order. During jump training from a balloon, one of the chaps before him streamered and died on impact with the ground. The rest of the day was cancelled and the men in the balloon basket were offered 48 hours off after what they'd witnessed. But the next day Ken was back up at the balloon to get his jumps in. He told me they never shaped their berets. They got rained on so much during training that the berets naturally shaped their heads. Newer recruits, seeing all the old sweats with their formed berets, then began the tradition of beret shaping. During the planning phase prior to D-Day, it was decided the battalion required more machine guns and fewer mortars, so Ken's mortar team was moved on to the Vickers machine gun. He was also relieved of his Sten, which he said he quite liked, and given a rifle. He said he was rubbish with it. Once I brought home a deactivated Lee Enfield to show him, his only remarks were, Have you got the bayonet for it? Sometimes it would get stuck between their ribs, and you had to put your foot on them to get it out. This brought a grinding halt to all conversation. The platoon's D-Day objective was to form part of a line of machine guns and anti-tank guns across a field regarded as the most likely place for tanks to try and get to Pegasus Bridge. He told me that in the plane, the paras sang onward Christian soldiers to drown out the sound of flak bursting around the plane and rattling off the fuselage. He also remembered looking out of one of the portholes to see red and green tracers whizzing past. He'd volunteered to jump just prior to the supply bundles, number 11 in the stick, a job no one wanted because there was a chance of being hit in mid-air by the canister which would follow. His jump buddy, Private John Farmer, would come after the supply bundles. When the green light came on, plane was very low and they were receiving a lot of flak. They started to jump but after number 9 leapt out, the red light came on. Number 10 still jumped and Ken thought, bugger this, I'm getting out, and he jumped. He said he was in the air for about five seconds after his chute deployed before he hit the ground very hard, but luckily uninjured. No one else got out, among them John Farmer. The plane flew on into the night, never to be heard of again. No wreckage was ever found. It's presumed it ditched in the channel. 
Once Ken landed, not knowing what had happened to the rest of his stick, he gathered up his gear and headed in what he thought was the direction of the rally point, an old quarry near Ronville. At one point, he heard German voices on the other side of a hedge, so threw a grenade over and ran as fast as he could. When his platoon was gathered at their objective, in wheat fields next to Ronville, they had four six-pounder anti-tank guns, which had been brought in by glider, and their machine guns. They set up in line along a sunken road, where it was presumed German tanks would come. At around ten on the morning of D-Day, the tanks arrived. Three Stugs of the 125th Panzer Grenadier Regiment, with supporting infantry, made their way across the field, trying to find a way through to the bridge. The paras had been told not to fire until the anti-tank guns had taken their shot at the tanks. They waited until the tanks were 50 yards away before opening fire. Ken and his crew raked the field with machine gun fire. They kept firing for 20 minutes after the German attack failed to make sure no one was left alive. Once the invasion was underway, the battalion stayed in Ronville for some days. Ken had been a butcher's boy at home and was put to work as company cook. One day, when he had a cooking fire going in the house, a sergeant stormed in and told him to put the fire out. The Germans were using his fire to range their mortars. The battalion next relieved the 1st Canadian Parachute Battalion at a brickworks in Le Menil. They were shelled by the Germans, but a rule was applied that for every German round that came over, four would be sent back. The shelling soon became less frequent. The Germans were only a couple of fields away and Ken said he often felt very tense. He was once out in a listening post and said it was the most terrified he'd ever been. He could hear Germans creeping around and spent the whole night lying on his back clutching a grenade. It was at Le Menil that he was hit by shrapnel and suffered wounds to his back and wrist. He was dragged by his comrades to a small hut just outside the brickworks where the injured and dead were being put and waited for the doctor. He was sent back to Britain, where his wrist was operated on. For a time, he lost the use of his hand due to the wound. By the time he was well enough, the war was over and being back in Britain, he was demobilised. Once back home in Southport, he cycled to Manchester to see the family of John Farmer, his buddy lost on D-Day, a round trip of 120 miles. I was lucky enough for the 75th anniversary to share a wonderful moment with my grandpa when I parachuted into DZK Saneville for the Normandy commemorations as part of Pathfinder Parachute Group. Never have I been so proud as when he asked me how high I jumped from, only for him to trump me by saying his was from about 400 feet. Keep up the amazing work, Alex Birch. Our next story comes from Jack Fawkes. Dear James and Al, I would like to tell the story of my Uncle Jack, who I was named after, and a sad but exciting tale from the Battle of the Atlantic. The Fawkes family has always been a hard lot. They've been fishermen, labourers, carpenters. I'm actually the fourth Jack in my family since 1900. The first died in a horrific storm off the Shetland Islands in 1901. The second, his son, was one of the many killed on the Somme in 1916. Then there was my great-uncle, who joined the RAF in September 1940. After home services duties, he was pronounced fit for flying duty in February 1941 and began training as a wireless operator air gunner. He graduated from flight school at the end of 1942 with the rank of sergeant 
and was assigned to 172 Squadron at Chivener, Devon, equipped with Wellington bombers. The squadron was part of Coastal Command, responsible for hunting the U-boats that prowled the Atlantic Ocean, sinking merchant shipping and troop transports coming from the United States. Hunting U-boats was dangerous work, entailing long night patrols across the Bay of Biscay. It was also, more often than not, incredibly dull. Some crews could go an entire tour and never see anything or get into any kind of action. 172 Squadron was actually pioneering in terms of developing aerial anti-submarine warfare. During the first two years of the war, 172 had little to no success in destroying or even spotting any U-boats during daylight hours. RAF Coastal Command eventually realised that U-boats were using the cover of darkness to speedily surface cross the Bay of Biscay to their home bases in France from the wider Atlantic Ocean. To give them a nocturnal edge, Coastal Command mounted enormous, powerful searchlights called lay lights onto their Wellingtons. Once a U-boat was spotted over the dark ocean, either by radar or by sight, the lay light would be switched on at the last minute, illuminating the entire surface of the water for a great distance. In theory, after spotting the U-boat, and while it was still illuminated by the light, the Wellington would make a sharp turn, fly in a low altitude, usually under 200 feet, and then drop a depth charge. This was much easier said than done, and took an incredible feat of skill to manoeuvre such a large plane. Jack arrived at Chivner, along with the rest of the crew of L-172, during mid-December 1942. The crew, aside from Jack, were Pilot Officer Myers and Sergeants Pollard, Francis, Whitwell and Paul. Yorkshireman John Myers, the pilot, was just 21. December 1922 was not a successful month for U-boat hunting for Jack and the crew of L-172. The weather over the Bay of Biscay was consistently poor. Hail, heavy rain, bad visibility, electrical storms and on one occasion violent turbulence, which experienced in a twin-engine propeller aircraft designed in 1936 must have been terrifying. These conditions, of course, made the task of locating, let alone attacking, U-boats very difficult. Overall, out of the 80 missions flown by 172 Squadron in December, just two U-boats were spotted with no successful engagements recorded. Two Wellingtons, along with all crew members on board, were lost at sea during the same time period, both due to bad weather. January 1943 was not much better. Again, bad weather and engine failure are consistently mentioned as the biggest threats during the long patrols over the Bay of Biscay. Jack and crew did spot a U-boat illuminated by the lee light on the night of the 18th of January, but the records note it simply disappeared under the waves. The operations summary for the squadron reports that although there were no casualties during January, it had a large number of cases of flying strain, which was RAF's language for shell shock. 70 non-commissioned officers reported this ailment out of the total squadron strength of 543 airmen. The operation summary blames this increase on the bleakness of the weather in January. All in all, the airbase at Chivener in January sounds like a very bleak place. On the 4th of February 1943, Wellington L of 172, piloted by John Myers, took off for a routine patrol at 20.03 hours with Jack on board. They were never heard of again and no further records are given from the logbook. It simply reads, no radio signals were received. After February 1943, the official records we have for Jack state the usual process for informing next of kin of those killed in action was followed. Upon the date of his disappearance, Jack had been in the RAF for two years and 141 days. He had spent just under two months in a combat zone after spending over two years training. 
Jack was awarded three medals for his service in the war, which were sent to his next of kin in May 1945. The War Medal, awarded to all service personnel during the war, the 1939-45 Star, awarded to all personnel who saw combat, and the most interesting medal of the three, the Atlantic Star. The star has a colourful ribbon of blue, white and green, which is supposed to represent the colours of the Atlantic. The ribbons for the star and the other campaign medals were designed by King George himself. That is all of the official documentation that exists on Jack's service. However, I came across a book written by a Canadian historian called Norman Franks. To my knowledge, it's the only book about Coastal Command's Wellington squadrons. Jack's name appears on page 183, amid a count of what may have happened that night he went missing. Still under active investigation, writes Norman Franks, is the loss of Wellington L of 172 Squadron. The possibility is that L-172 was lost attacking and sinking U-519. U-519, commanded by a career Nazi called Gunther Eppen, went missing with all hands without a trace the same night that Jack's Wellington did. The actual truth, of course, we will never know, as these events occurred a long time ago. I think, however, we can all be proud that Jack's name, actions and participation are written in a history book that other people have read. Thanks, guys. It would mean the world to the Forkses if you included Jack's story. Best wishes, Jack Forks. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. The next story is from Stephen Parsons. My great-uncle, William Baker, joined the Navy in 1940 and served on board HMS Repulse, surviving her sinking in 1941. 
All that my family received during the war was a telegram to say he survived the sinking of the Repulse. And then at the end of the war, another telegram to say he was presumed dead. My gran never knew what happened to her brother and spent the rest of her life wondering what became of him. She assumed he had died in a prisoner of war camp. I always promised to her that I would find out, but sadly she died before I solved the mystery. After Repulse sank, William was returned to Singapore, where two days after his 20th birthday, he boarded HMS Lee Wo, which was soon to become the most decorated small ship in the Navy. This small riverboat, with a crew of just 84, and her sister ship were ordered to Batavia, a perilous trip. What happened next has been brilliantly covered in a book by one of the crew, Stand By to Die, from which I have taken my information. The two ships set off, but over the course of the next two days, lost contact with each other. HMS Lee Wo was attacked by planes during the first day, and again after they dropped anchor to wait for darkness, so as to run the banker straight. Late in the afternoon, they spotted a Japanese convoy, which was taking invasion troops to Sumatra. The CO of Lee Wo was a Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve Officer, Lieutenant Wilkinson. He came over the radio to the crew and announced they would attack the convoy, as there was no escape. Incredibly, this decision was made with the knowledge that there were only 13 shells for the small deck gun and a few practice shells. HMS Lee Wo engaged a troop transport and began to shell it. Within minutes, the ship was on fire. With all the Lee Wo's ammunition gone, Lieutenant Wilkinson made the decision to ram another ship and drove Lee Wo straight into it. This left the small ship adrift with no ammunition in the middle of a Japanese convoy. After a period of shelling, the Japanese destroyers found their range and Lee Wo sank by the stern. In the water, the survivors came under machine gun fire from sailors on the rammed troop ship and were then approached by a Japanese destroyer. The destroyer ploughed through the survivors in the water and used its propellers to kill more men. Thankfully, darkness came and the few survivors were able to make it to an island where most of them were taken prisoner. Regarding my great-uncle, I am not sure at what stage of the battle he lost his life. Some men died on the ship during the shelling and others were killed in the water, either by machine gun or the actions of the destroyer. I am fairly certain he never made it to an island and he was definitely not taken prisoner. For the actions of the HMS Lee Wo, Lieutenant Wilkinson was awarded a posthumous VC after the war when those survivors of the POW camps came home to tell their stories. For years, my family was none the wiser about William's fate until the internet became a real thing and I was able to use it to do some proper research. My gran always said her father, a veteran of the Great War, never got over the loss. But at least we can now remember him on both the 10th of December and the 14th of February and take great pride in the knowledge that my great-uncle died during an action which won a VC. Best wishes, Steve Parsons. The next story comes from Mark Monaghan in California's El Dorado Hills. Before I get to my family's experience in World War II, allow me to briefly mention my Canadian grandfather's brush with one of the most famous flyers of the First War. Sergeant Louis Mark Thompson was an observer gunner in the Royal Flying Corps and witnessed the Red Baron in combat. After my grandfather was wounded, he was in the field hospital cot next to Roy Brown, credited with downing Baron von Richthofen. 
On their safe return to Canada, the two of them carried the Red Baron's aircraft seat through the streets of Toronto. It's now in an Ottawa military museum. In World War II, my grandfather's nephew, 21-year-old Flight Sergeant Ted Townsend, served in the Canadian Snowy Owl Squadron, flying Wellington bombers. I have a photo of him with my then-teenage mother. A wing separated during a training flight in Yorkshire in 1943, and the crew of five, including Ted, perished. Several years ago, I visited his gravesite in Durham and sent my mother a photo. My father survived the war. He served in the United States Army in the Philippines. At the age of 19, he was training in Leyte to be one of the first wave of the planned invasion of Kyushu in November 1945. When the news came of the Japanese surrender late one night, he was on duty monitoring the radio net, and so he was the first in his battalion to hear the news. The war was over. His service continued in the occupation forces in Japan and in Korea five years later. Regards, Mark Monaghan. That's all for this episode. If you've got a family story you'd like to be considered for the show, please email it to wehavewayspodcast at gmail.com or leave it on the members site under the Family Stories tab. A reminder, that's patreon.com slash wehaveways. Thank you so much for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>